Today on Truth Encounter, we are going to reveal the contents of an ancient manuscript that actually tells who will conquer the world. Dave Wurtzen, our Truth Encounter study leader, introduces a peacemaker who can deliver on what he promises. Dave? There's something that you need to realize about the world affairs, is that the nations are always wrestling with one another over who has the right to rule. Who has the right to rule? And a very important question is, who has the right to control Mount Zion? And I want you to think very carefully about that, you know, because I think it's really easy for us is that the idea of the baby in the manger can be like a nice, sweet story to us. And the average Wall Street person and the the governmental official and those kind of things, and think, well, isn't it nice to know the story of the baby in a manger? But then they step out of a nice candlelit service where the candles are glowing and we sing Silent Night. They walk out into a war planning room and they think, like, what in the world does any of this have to do with a baby born in a manger? What I want you to realize is that it has everything to do with the baby born in a manger because all of world history... All the world history revolves around this question, who has the right to rule? And let's suppose there were an explosion in the Middle East and we are able to go in and conquer Iraq and we're able to seize control of the Middle East. Let's suppose that Russia disintegrates and Europe begins to unite and all come together and the United States is the leading government in the world. Power... Power will be a very seductive, a very seductive thing. If that were to happen, you're going to hear all kinds of voices. We can do it now. We can bring about a new world order. I've even heard officials saying we can bring in a whole new world order. And what I want you to realize as a born-again believer, whenever you hear that, until the rightful ruler, the one to whom it belongs, comes, There's never going to be a lasting peace on earth. And that's very important for you to be devoted to that. It's very important for us to be committed to that. And the story goes back to Genesis 49. If you are trying to get through the Bible in a year, some of you do that, and you get a little bit behind, Genesis 49 is like one of those genealogical chapters that you catch up a little bit. You know, you kind of speed read Genesis 49, because what in the world... Does this ancient prophecy from this dying father have to do with us? Well, be careful when you do that in the Word of God. Because I think you'll find out this morning that Genesis 49, with all these obscure names and all these kind of poetic, obscure predictions, might have something to do with our lives. Let's look at Genesis chapter 49, verse 1. Then Jacob called for his sons, and he said, Gather around so that I can tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. I want you to notice that this is Jacob. He's on his deathbed. Remember when we talked two weeks ago, we had him bless Ephraim and Manasseh. And at that time, he was very close to death. Well, now he's just a few moments, maybe an hour or so from going home to be with his Savior. He gathers his sons around. And you can see them gathering together around the bed. And he tells them, I'm going to tell you what will happen in the days to come. Now, the Hebrew phrase, the days to come, is afraid that's kind of elastic. It does refer to the future, but it can encompass, like for Jacob's sons, it can involve 
what's going to happen, say, 400 years, 500 years from their life. But in the Bible, it also has a ring of final things. In the days to come, also has a feel, especially as it develops through the Old Testament, that it's going to have to do with some final culminating days. And as we look at Genesis 49, we find out that that's truly what Jacob does predict. He predicts some events, he predicts some general patterns, would be a better way of saying it, some general patterns of what's going to happen in the tribes of Israel. In fact, he does so, so skillfully, that most critical scholars want to say that this passage was not written by Jacob at all. It was written sometime during the time of David, during the monarchy. And whoever wrote this, this obscure poet, wrote this text kind of as a general overview of what was happening among the tribes. Because you've got to realize, in the Genesis context, all you have is Jacob's 12 sons. They're not tribes yet. They're just one family, kind of an extended family, kind of like maybe some of your families. They're down in Egypt, and yet this godly patriarch kind of gives them a foretaste, a foretelling of what's going to be their history. And that gives this passage a great power. Jacob goes on to say, assemble and listen to me. It sounds like a dad. Dads love to say, now listen to me. Look me in the eye and listen to me. The Lord Jesus liked to say that. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Listen to your father Israel. I want you to see the play in that verse. In verse 2, listen, sons of Jacob. The sons of Jacob remind us that they were the boys of the father named Heel. I want you to notice when you're having your quiet time, you want to pick up on some of these subtle changes. Notice he says, assemble and listen, sons of the heel, sons of Yaakov. Yaakov in Hebrew means the heel. Sons of the trickster. But then he goes on to say, listen to your father Israel. And Israel means the one who strived with God and won. What Jacob is very skillfully doing is bringing together what we've been studying. Those of you that have been able to have been with us, you've been following this pattern. It brings back to you, oh yeah, I remember when Jacob, the heel, tricked his brother Esau. I remember when he was in the Super Bowl of Cons with his uncle Laban. I remember then, but when I remember Israel, I remember the night on the Jabbok River when he wrestled with God. And his heart was exposed and he hung on to God and says, God, I want to love you. I want you to bless me. So all that comes together in one little verse because these are not just the sons of the trickster. By the grace of God, the same kind of grace that transformed Judah, that transformed David later on in the scripture, the one that transformed Rahab is the one that transformed Jacob as well. So they're not only sons of this trickster, they've now become the sons of the prince of God, a man who wrestled with God and won. Now what he does is in this chapter, he goes right through his 12 sons. And I doubt that we'll make it through all 12 sons. We'll see what happens. But we want to share with you some of the key foretelling events that Jacob exposes in these verses. He begins with his firstborn. Reuben, you're my firstborn. My might, the first sign of my strength. You are excelling in honor, excelling in power. You know, that's a great beginning. If you were Reuben, the firstborn son, and your father puts his hand on you, and he says, you are the son of my strength. You're the son of my might. You're the first issue of my seed. You would be, you know, real prideful and kind of swell in your chest. Reuben was the kind of a man that you would expect 
great things from this Reuben. He was the firstborn child. And in the Old Testament, the firstborn children were the ones that were given the double inheritance. Reuben was the son with great expectations. But look what the next verse says. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. What it's telling us here is that Reuben revealed a character. And the idea of turbulent as water is the idea as impetuous and as destructive as a stream that swells. As Texans, we can really understand what we're talking about. In Israel, water kind of goes like this as well. In Israel, it's kind of like Texas in the fact that you have dry riverbeds. Back east, the Hudson River always flows. You don't have a period of time where suddenly the Hudson River dries up. Uh, the Susquehanna is just always flowing. But down here we have these wadis, which is what they call them in Israel, where most of the year it will be dry and you'll think nothing out of it. It just looks like an indentation. And then all of a sudden there will be rains and the water will just blast through these ravines. And it becomes a tumultuous, destructive, tremendous force. Well, that's the way the Israelite would think about the water. And what it's saying is that Reuben appeared to be the man of strength. But as his character developed, he became a man who, un you wouldn't expect it, but he became impetuous and he became very destructive. Now, what did he do? It says that he went up to his father's bed onto my couch and defiled it. This is an event that took place back in Genesis chapter 35. Reuben took Bilkah who was one of Jacob's wives. He was, she was Rachel's maid. And evidently she was a lot younger. It's very possible she was a lot younger because a girl like Rachel would have a younger girl that would minister to her back in those days. And evidently Reuben had an affair with this girl. Now that's a bad news thing. And what he did is he had this incestuous relationship. And back in Genesis 35, Jacob never said anything. In fact, it's just kind of thrown in there. It just mentions Reuben went in onto Bilka. And then it just doesn't tell you anything, doesn't judge it. But here we find out what was really going on. That can happen in our lives. You know, it's possible that a believer right here in this room can do something in their life. They can get involved in an immoral sin or doing something that they should not do. And nothing will happen. Nobody will find out about it. Nobody even knows. And you feel like I'm an exception. Reuben could have said, man alive, my father's an old man. I really love the woman. After all, he shouldn't have married her in the first place. It's a multiple relationship. My dad set a bad example. He could have used all kinds of excuses. One of the messages of Genesis 49 is what we do in life, the events that we do in life, have strategic effect down through the generations. One of the ideas I want every dad and every mom and every person in this room to realize, what you do in your life is not only connected with all your kids and all your relatives and, and all your friends today, but it's going to be connected for the generations to come. In America today, it's very popular to think, I can do something and it has no effect. But it does. What Reuben teaches us is that here is an event that from a biblical standpoint, when it happened, it looked like no big deal. But when it came to his father's deathbed, his father says, Reuben, you're not going to receive the blessing. 
You know what's very interesting about Reuben? Reuben never produces a great leader in Israel. Reuben never produces a David, never produces a Solomon. In fact, it's Reuben just takes some land on the other side of the Jordan. In fact, as history developed, Reuben just kind of got amalgamated with the Moabites. And it all started back here. Now, it doesn't mean that they were locked into some kind of a fatalistic, deterministic kind of a plan that there's no way they could get out of it. What it's saying is that just as from a physical standpoint, you might think of it this way, from a physical standpoint, in the physical generative abilities that we have in our bodies is all the potential. Like in the union and the formation of an embryo, it all starts with just two series of chromosomes that have all the potential for that human being. What the Bible is saying is not necessarily at all that that our moral and ethical and spiritual potentialities are in that physical seed. But it's saying that God has kind of ordained things very similar in the spiritual realm as he had in the physical realm. That just as in in that little potentiality of two series of chromosomes, that as Reuben was involved in immorality, it set up an immoral, impetuous kind of a family line that was true for the rest of their history. What that shows us is that your choices are important. What you do in one night is really important. And it carries effects on down through the generations. Now we're also going to find out that by the grace of God, that a family line that's really going bad a family line that's revealing a whole history of impetuousness and violence and immorality can change. We're going to find that in this chapter as well. But Reuben teaches us lost expectations. Bad choices, great beginning, bad ending. The next sons are introduced, two of them together, Simeon and Levi. It says Simeon and Levi are brothers. And that has the idea that evidently they were good, close buddies. They were close friends. But notice what they got together to do. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter into their council. Man, don't let me sit down and listen to their plans. Let me not join in their assembly. For they have killed men in their anger. They hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger, so fierce and their fury so so cruel. What was the characteristic of Simeon and Levi? It's a characteristic that's brought out in the book of Ephesians chapter 5, of being very much a part of the old way of life. Impetuous, violent anger. A really bad temper that can get hot as a, as a wood-burning stove cranked up to over a 1,000 degrees, and man, it just sends the fire, the fire of destruction into people's lives. You know the story. I don't have to remind you too much. Remember Simeon and Levi were the two brothers of Dinah? When Dinah was raped by Shechem, They used circumcision. The whole village of Shechem was circumcised when they were very, very incapacitated. Simeon and Levi were the angry brothers that came down and massacred an entire village. Now, they had a right to be angry. They had a righteous cause to be angry. But instead of letting God bring vengeance, they took things into their own hands. They forgot what Paul would later teach Vengeance is mine, I will repay. 
And so the story of Simeon and Levi comes to us today and says, man, you've got a really bad temper. Are you prone to violence? Watch out. Because it'll be passed on unless it's dealt with. Unless you open up and allow the spirit of grace to enter into your life. It'll go right on down through the generations. Simeon becomes a very obscure tribe. In fact, it mentions here that Simeon and Levi would both be dispersed. Look at the end of verse 7. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. When we read after the conquest of Canaan, when Simeon is given their part of the land, all they're given is a few cities within the territory of Judah. The reason they were only given a few cities is because Simeon had slowly but surely lost its descendants. They became less and less numerous. The first time it tells us how many were in Simeon, they're up there pretty good. The next time it mentions them, they've dropped almost in half. And then when they allot the land, all they get is a few cities because that's all it will take for this city, this, this group of descendants of Simeon, who because of their anger were dispersed. But I want you to notice something. Levi was also dispersed among the children of Israel. And this gives us a marvelous promise. Levi was just like Simeon, angry. But in the book of Exodus, there was a time when the people of Israel had turned in mass away from God. They were led by some very false leadership and they walked away from the true worship of Yahweh. Phineas was a son of Levi. And he became absolutely self-righteously angry about this. He received through Moses a revelation from God, a mandate. And he went through the tribes and he executed the judgment of God against these idolaters. In fact, he cleansed. He cleansed Israel of its idolatry. Therefore, because of that one righteous man, notice that God used his besetting weakness, which was his anger in the tribe of Levi. This time, it was submitted to God, and he got angry for what he really needed to get angry about, and he cut down the idolatry in the land and the dispersion of Levi. Levi was dispersed among the children of Israel. But you know what? Instead of the disbursement being a curse, like Simeon's, which became obscurity, Levi became the class of priests. And as they were scattered through the land, they became the tribe within Israel that in every village, like Midlothian and Waxahachie and Dallas, if you put it into a modern standpoint, it would mean the Levites would be those in our town who would open up the Word of God and make sure that we had accurate, skillful instruction in God's holy Torah and His teaching. So what I'm telling you is that what Jacob pronounced in many ways is seeming like a curse. Because of the righteousness of one man in the tribe of Levi, that was turned around. And their disbursement Instead of becoming a curse, it became one of Israel's greatest blessings. And Levi did produce some great leaders. Moses was from the tribe of Levi. And so unlike Simeon, who went into obscurity, Levi, in the course of the generations of his tribe, by grace 
things turned around and he initiated a whole different history. Then we come to the main character in this chapter, verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Now this is a very strange verse. In fact, if I were to translate it like this, in the story of Genesis, the, the, the main presentation story, you would think the verse should read like this. Joseph, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Now why would I translate it like that? Somebody tell me, why would I translate it like that? Your brothers will bow down to you. Why would I pronounce that to Joseph? For several weeks in the book of Genesis, what have we been trying to find out how it would happen? What did Joseph dream at the very beginning of his story? Remember the dream where he saw the sun, moon, and stars? We've gone over this. This is the twist in the story of Genesis. In fact, it's such a good twist that some of my main teachers in Old Testament that are really good friends of mine, they didn't even get the twist. I've got a friend of mine that does this chapter right here, and he makes Joseph the son of blessing. And in one way, he is. But he doesn't really catch this real subtle, and yet it's a very powerful twist, as the story of Joseph and Judah have been told. The writer very subtly, like he threw right in the middle of the story of Joseph, he told the story of Judah and Tamar. Tamar was his daughter-in-law. And they have this weird story about this girl that desperately wants to have a baby. She's so desperate that she dresses up as a harlot and she seduces her own father-in-law. Now remember when we say that passage, we learn that there's some ethical things about a leveret marriage, uh, the, the, rightful, the right that a widow had to have seed raised up through her to her dead husband. And so within the context of the ethics of the Old Testament, she was on firm ground, but she did it in a very, very tenuous way. Why do we have that story? You know what the critics say? The critics of the book of Genesis say, it's just kind of there. I don't know why the editor, it's from another editor who didn't know what they were doing. But Jacob in his blessing, is telling us exactly. The reason that it throws in those little vignettes about Judah is that Judah is the important son. Judah is the preeminent son. Judah, the name means, in fact, in Hebrew, if you heard the name, you would automatically think of Yahweh is praise. Yada means to praise, okay? And when you put it on Yahweh, when you have kind of that that beginning, it means that God is the one that's been praised. In fact, when Leah gave birth to Judah, what she said is, I'm going to call him Judah. May Yahweh be praised. Now, I want you to catch something really interesting. Now it says, Yahweh be praised. Your brothers will praise you. Judah's name means, may Yahweh be praised. But in the blessing on the son, Jacob says, Judah, your brothers are going to praise you. Now, stay with me. I want you to think of how close. Think of these phrases. Yahweh be praised. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Now, what does that do with Judah and the Lord? You notice how close? You notice how close it puts Judah to the Lord? One minute his name means, may Yahweh be praised. But then in the blessing that his elderly dying father puts upon him, he says, your brothers are going to praise you. 
it starts to give us this little hint that there's somehow going to be a connection between the praise of Judah and the praise of Yahweh. Now that might not strike you as being that significant, a close connection. But to an Israelite, to juxtapose, to put that close praise, praise for God and praise for a person, that would be bordering on some very, very strange teaching. And it develops a little bit further. It says, Judah, your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. So Judah is going to be compared to a lion. And it pictured this lion as defeating their prey and then returning with that prey up to its lair. Then like a lion crouched, he lies down. You can picture this very powerful lion. And no one will challenge the royalty, the power, the might of this conquering lion. Like a lion crouched, he lies down. Like a lioness who dares to rouse him. So you picture, it changes the imagery a little bit and presents like a mother lioness who's very powerful and none of the other beasts of the field will challenge the power and strength of this lion. So we have the tribe of Judah being the brother who all the other brothers, not to Joseph, but to Judah, all the other brothers are going to bow down. Judah's going to be the warrior tribe is going to be the warrior tribe that conquers his enemies and will be the one who has the leader, the leadership in Israel. It goes even further. The scepter will not depart from Judah. And you can just picture some of the movies you've seen where you've seen a king sitting on a throne with a large staff like a mace. That's the idea. With this large staff, the staff goes between the ruler's leg nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. What it's saying is it makes a promise. And this is an incredible thing. In fact, it's really hard for me to get across to you if you were gathered together with the sons of Jacob around his dying deathbed, it would be very strange what Jacob is promising. In other words, if we would have taken a vote, if we would have done an interview, had the news people come in and interview the sons of Jacob, they would have all said Joseph is the promised child. The rulership will be with Joseph. In fact, it's very interesting. As the history of Israel develops, every family has some clashes. You know, every family has some competition. Every family has one son that's against another son. As the history of Israel develops, guess where the competition falls? It falls between Ephraim, who's the second son of Joseph, and the tribe of Judah. Like, if you don't know anything about the plot line of the Old Testament, if I tell you that, and if you remember it, it'll bring together much of the story of the Old Testament. The United Kingdom, which produces the divided kingdom, the divided kingdom takes place over the conflict between the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Ephraim. In the early days, Ephraim is the leading tribe. Through the period of the judges, in the early period of the monarchy, Ephraim is the powerful tribe. They're the ones that hold the leadership. In fact, the tabernacle is in Shiloh, which is in the area of Ephraim Manasseh. And then suddenly you have a king who comes to the throne, and he does so by an incredible work of God 
And his name is David. In fact, the whole last part of 1 Samuel is about the struggle that this son of Judah has in coming to the throne. But David becomes the king. He's able to conquer Jerusalem. And he unites the kingdom. Now, what we're seeing here is that Jacob was predicting that that was what's going to happen. In fact, let me go a little bit further. If I were to tell you, give me an alternative name for Israel. I have some Israelite friends. Give me an alternative name. Somebody raise their hand and give me an alternative name. They are not only Israelites, they are Jews. Where do you think Jews come from? Eodii. It means Judas. You ever stop and think about that? Do you realize that the whole nation of Israel today is known as the Judas? The Jews. See, in English, you don't make any of those connections. But that's really what's going on. This tribe became so powerful that the whole nation of Israel, all the Jews are incorporated in this tribe of Judah. And what I'm saying is that their father, at the very beginning of their nation, predicted that that was going to happen. Now, that's an objective fact. I don't care what you believe today. You can believe anything you want to about the Christmas story. It's just a plain, objective fact that Judah became preeminent among the sons of Israel, that Judah became the one who had the right to rule, and that the whole nation of Israel was kind of amalgamated into this tribe. That's just fact. I mean, you can go to Israel today and walk into, into Tel Aviv and you're going to get hit right in the face with that. In fact, you don't have to go to Tel Aviv. Go to Miami Beach. Go to sections of Connecticut in New York. And you're going to be walking and, and talking and socializing with people that are called Jews. And they have a very strong identity. You say, Dave, why are you stressing that so much? Because there's another objective fact that he talks about. Look what he says in verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his legs until he comes. The NIV translated until he comes to whom it belongs, which is a good translation. There's a real debate over, some of you have until Shiloh. And you have a big debate in this passage about what Shiloh means. Shiloh in the, in the period of the judges was a place where the tabernacle was located, but that's a little bit different, different spelling. Probably the very best way to take it is where the NIV took it until we take Shiloh as meaning to whom it belongs. A prepositional phrase that means to whom it belongs. And that's why the NIV puts it this way, until he, and the Hebrew text has a masculine pronoun there, until he comes. Now what did we do? We just jumped from the tribe of Judah until to what? What did we jump to? to one man, to one masculine ruler until he comes and what's this one characterized? He is the one to whom it belongs. And that's what else it says. And the obedience of the nations is his. Did you see that? Remember I started out today and I, you said, Dave, where in the world are you going? You started out in the Middle East. You started out in Russia. Man, we could have ended up in the United Nations. Yeah, we could have. I want you to be really listening to what political leaders say. I want you to listen really carefully. 
And I want you to listen when they say, we need to all get together. Man, we need to all get together. We can work this out. Man, we can control this planet. Man, we can get peace on earth. We can get a good economic situation going. Man, everything's going to be fine. Watch out. It doesn't mean that we don't sit down and talk. Until Jesus comes, there can be periods of peace. But it's going to be because of power. And it needs to be, in a healthy sense, it can be the rightful use of power. Power. Used, hopefully, in a righteous way. Just like you control a criminal. But whenever you hear, and young people, I want you to be really careful of this, because in university, you'll hear great voices. 70 years ago, if you were in Russia, if you were young people, just like these young people here in Russia, 70 years ago, there were powerful voices, tremendously powerful voices. And they were saying, we've got a new order. Man, we can bring in utopia. Everybody's going to be alike. Wouldn't that be great? Young people always like that. Man, we're going to have one great big time where we won't own anything. We'll all own everything. And we'll eat together. We'll live together. We'll just have a great time together. And we're going to overthrow the czar. We're going to overthrow this terrible old regime. And we're going to all live happily ever after. If you were in Cuba as a young person, just in the late 50s, if you were a young person there, you would have heard a voice say, we need to set up a new regime. This is a new day. This is the answer. Get rid of the terrible persecution. And the West is the enemy. And we can bring in a new era, a new hope. And young people gave their blood for that. Now, what did they bring in in those two instances? They did bring in another regime. But those utopian hopes crumbled. The same violent cycle continued. The same persecution. In fact, many times even worse. You know why? Because the, the dream of a kingdom where there would be peace was not rooted in the one to whom it belonged. You notice it said in this verse that this great, great king, this ruler to whom it belonged, it says he will tether his donkey to a vine. Now, that's a strange symbol for us. But if you were an Israelite, you would understand that if you were a little kid and you tied your donkey, excuse the pronunciation, but that's the way we pronounce it where I'm from, a donkey. If you were to tether your donkey to a vine, your dad would kill you. You don't do that. You don't tie your horse to a grapevine. Grapevines are expensive. But you see, in this day, grapevines are going to be so plenteous. They're going to be all over the place. Man, you can tie your horse to them if you want to, and your dad won't be uptight with you. Also, royalty rode on these donkeys. As the Old Testament develops, you have nobility and kings. In fact, in Zechariah, we have a king who comes riding on the donkey. And there we have the same imagery carried out here. Notice what else it says about him. It says he will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Those are marvelous, powerful symbols. Marvelous, powerful symbols of the tremendous prosperity, the tremendous economic material prosperity, the tremendous joy of peacefulness, and this ruler is pictured as having a gigantic celebration. And it's just a marvelous imagery of you can eat. It's like a holiday time. But I want you to notice is that it's the son of Judah who brings that time. 
All through your life, there's going to be voices that call to you, dreams that beckon to you. And it's really easy. Some of you are beckoned by, well, we've got to be realistic about the world. What I want you to believe is that this book will make you more realistic about the world and more objective and more in tune with what's going to last than any other dream you might ever get involved in. And it's what I'm counting my whole life on. Back at Jacob's deathbed, totally unexpectedly, Jacob predicted that Judah, who was not his firstborn, who had a horrible past, but was changed by the grace of God, he said, that's going to be the son that becomes the ruler. As the history of the Old Testament developed, David, the son of Judah, became the ruler of Israel. But then he died. And the kingdom fell into disarray. But they kept very careful track of the genealogy, especially of Judah. And so when you open to the book of Matthew, when you read the Christmas story, all you dads, I'm sure, when your kids are all impatient and they want to go and open your presents, one of the things that all of you dads will do is you will open up to Matthew chapter 1 and you will say, kids, I want to read to you one of the most exciting passages in all the Bible. And before we open up our presence, we're going to read this. Now, the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, was like this. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram was the father of Abinadab. And on and on it goes. And you'll all read that to your kids, right? Because that's one of the most exciting parts of the Bible, right? Wrong. You just skip over it. But Genesis 49 tells you why it's so important. Matthew chapter 1 and Luke's genealogy both trace it through. And if you trace it carefully, you'll find out Jesus that was born as a Bethlehem in the manger was a son of Judah. To him, it belongs. To him, it belongs. What, is, what, what belongs to him? What does Judah mean as we close? What did I tell you Judah meant? Praise. Praise to. And Jacob predicted his brothers will praise Judah. Now, how can you have a name that means praise to Yahweh and then everyone else turns and praises you? It means that you are. You got it? You see, that's what Christmas is about. It's an incredible, incredible story. And like a very skillful writer, Yahweh up in heaven slowly inspired these men to give us the kind of hints that brought it all together. But you know what? They're the kind of hints that mean nothing. They're the kind of hints... You see, God doesn't just make it so, so devastatingly powerful and so overwhelming, you just have to believe it. He doesn't. In fact, if, it, if, if I was talking to a conservative Jew here today, you would just blow it. It's very possible. You'd blow it off and say, just another Protestant interpretation of the Old Testament. And to be honest with you, if I enter into your arena and I take your presuppositions and I hear it from your cultural standpoint, I'd probably say you're right. Because the more that I work with the text, the more that I realize, you know, the only way that you can really understand is if you open your heart. It's by grace. It's by grace. 
And the heart that's open to grace is the heart that humbles itself and says, okay, God, I'll listen. I'll let you tell me the story. I won't try to tell the story myself. I'll try to get out of my traditions. I'll try to get away from some of my presuppositions. I'll just sit here and I will listen. And I'll try to listen with an open heart. And I believe that anybody on planet Earth, I believe that any human being on planet Earth that will say, God, I will listen to your revelation with an open heart. Tell me the story. I will listen. I think if they'll do that, that they'll come and say, may the tribe of Judah rule. May the son of David rule. He is the one to whom it belongs. And right now at a time where Jesus has not come as the lion of the tribe of Judah, instead he's come as the humble lamb of Bethlehem. He says, believe in me. Praise me. But I want you to know, brethren and sisters, just as sure as Judah amalgamated all the other tribes, and they're all known as Jews, just as certainly as that is an objective reality of our time, there's going to come a day when Jesus, the son of David, goes to Mount Zion, and all the nations will stream. And you're going to hear newscasts. You're going to hear worldwide celebrations. Praise to Jesus the King. And I want you to dream of those days. Because those are the days where dead people are going to come back to life again. Because that King is the resurrection and the life. There's no longer going to be an Arab-Israeli conflict because Arabs that submit to that Jesus and Jews that submit to that Jesus will be brothers and sisters. And brothers and sisters, that's the only hope there is. It's the only hope there is. If you put your hope in anything else, it'll vaporize before your eyes. But men and women like ourselves have believed in Genesis 49 and the hope of Genesis 49 from the very beginning of time, and they have lived.